Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. We are going through the Bible in a year. And to help get a perspective on that, Drew has put together some slides. I'd like you to show the first slide. Does anybody know what that is? It's a butterfly's wing under a microscope. Next slide. There's the wing itself. Next slide. There's the butterfly. Next slide. There's the field in which the butterfly was residing. Next slide. There's a picture from space high up showing the region, the state where that butterfly, that field was in. Next slide. There's the country that the butterfly was in. Next slide. There's the world that the butterfly was in. Next slide. And that's the Milky Way that the butterfly was in. Why am I doing this? Why did I do that? Because sometimes when we're teaching the word, we're looking through a microscope at a butterfly wing. Maybe just one word. I preached on prayer one time. You can preach on love, forgiveness, baptism. We can focus in on a specific thing. And that's important to understand the depth. Sometimes we step back a little bit. And we look at the wing or the butterfly itself. Maybe it's a phrase, God is love. Maybe it's a parable that brings together a story. A chapter. A book. A series of books. Prophecies. Gospels. We keep stepping back and back. Well, now we're looking from outer space to get a perspective of not just the butterfly, but God's creation and God's word from a perspective of a standing back. So this morning I'm going to be teaching on two books, First and Second Kings. Now that's a piece of cake because that's only 350 years, 40 different kings, some major prophets, so I hope you brought lunch. <laughs> the perspective we're going to see is God looking and us looking at the nation of Israel during a period of time in their history. It's not a history lesson, but it's a story of a people. And I think it's a picture that we need to grasp of how God is working then and how God is working now. We just finished the books of Samuel, where we studied about the king, Saul. I have a phrase that I made up, it's probably not unique, but I said Saul was a man after Israel's own heart. He was politically correct. He was tall, handsome. He would have made all the news. He would have been a media darling. That's what he was chosen for. And God still worked with him. The Spirit of God was upon him until Saul departed from God. Then we studied about the two, probably the most important kings, well-known kings in the history of Israel, David and Solomon. David, a conqueror, conquered, God did. Goliath, and all the armies. He, he expanded the, the borders of Israel. He made it the most powerful country at that time. He didn't control like Rome did or Greek did, Greece did, but he controlled everything under his control and was totally impregnable as long as God was with him. He, he conquered the Philistines and, and, and conquered Jerusalem, brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He wrote the Psalms. He got the, he got the blueprints for the temple. All those accomplishments. But the most important thing about David 
is that he was a man after God's own heart. This morning when I'm talking with you, I want you to listen for two words, heart and fathers. I'm going to focus on that. Solomon, also famous, probably the richest man in the world, probably make Bill Gates look like a piker. Unbelievable wealth, but more importantly, unbelievable wisdom that God had given to him. He built the temple, he adored God, he honored God. But we know that both of these men, these kings, these mighty kings in the golden age of Israel, faltered, stumbled, and fell. And God still loved them. God still promised them their glory. There's something we need to know about Solomon. I wanted to pick this out. It's in 1 Kings 8, 54 to 61, starting in, I'm going to pick up 56 and 58. To understand, this is Solomon's, they call it Solomon's benediction. He has just dedicated the temple to the Lord. And it's a beautiful ceremony that he's gone through. He's been kneeling with his back to the congregation on his knees, lifting his hands up, praising God. And this is his prayer called Solomon's Benediction. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. David and Solomon each ruled for 40 years, the glory years of Israel. If we went back 40 years, that would be 1980 years. If we combined, that would be 1936. A lot has happened in 80 years in this country. And a lot happened in those 80 years of Solomon's and David's rule. They both, however, had failures. We know about Bathsheba. We know about Solomon and his wives, which we're going to talk about. We also know that they weren't the best of fathers. David's son Absalom rebelled against him. He had to flee from his very own son. Absalom was a a rebellious child, so they had problems. But the problem was in the heart of Solomon, which caused the decline. And we read in 1 Kings 1, 11, or 11, chapter 11, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to his Lord God as the heart of David his father had been. I'm going to be a little smart aleck here. If I was representing David as his, or excuse me, Solomon as his attorney, I could get him off on... Not guilty by reasons of insanity. Any man who has more than one wife is insane. I rest my case. Let's go on. He followed Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sinodians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. 
Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's commandments. We're starting to see that this is a heart problem. We look at the heart of David versus the heart of Saul and the heart of Solomon. David's heart, although he sinned, never turned away from God. Solomon's heart and Saul's heart did. A heart problem. Going on in verse 11, So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Aside the subordinate, Jeroboam, as we would say Jeroboam, was a subordinate, not his son, who ended up taking over the northern kingdoms. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Solomon had everything. Wealth, wisdom, power, health. He had everything. And yet, he turned away from God. He was influenced by outside influences. So God prophesied the division of Israel into two kingdoms. And it happened. Solomon's son, Jeroboam, Rehoboam, Rehoboam, was going to be taking over as king. He was the heir. The advisors came to him, the wise advisors that advised Solomon came to him and said, now let's reduce the taxes a little bit because it's been a heavy burden. Solomon, with all of his riches, had taxed the Israelites heavily to build the temple, to do lots of things, to expand his empire. And rather than listening to wise counsel, he listened to his peers, his young friends. Not that youth is not correct, but he was taken away from, from God. Jeroboam, Jeroboam was a subordinate a member of Solomon's household, it is his royal court, and he turned away, and he took over the northern kingdoms. Jeroboam is one who followed Solomon's officials. He was an Ephraimite of the northern clan, so he probably had a power base up there. So he takes over the northern kingdoms. Neither of these men, Rehoboam or Jeroboam, Jeroboam or Rehoboam, neither of them sought God's counsel. Rehoboam got good counsel, and I believe it was godly counsel, but he never went to God. So the once glorious kingdom of Israel, the promised land given to Abraham, his people, begins its decline to dissolution, conquest, exile, and dispersion. It'll take 350 years. They'll come back. And then in 70 A.D., they'll be dispersed forever until 1948. We'll get to that. The southern kingdom lasted only about 204 years. Excuse me, southern kingdom was 375 years. The northern kingdom was 200, uh, a little over 200 years. Remember, the United States is only 240 years old. I have about 20 minutes to talk about 40 kings in the two kingdoms, so we're going to hit some highlights. Show the slide of the northern and southern kingdoms so we can get a big picture. The northern kingdom is Rehoboam, Esau, Jehoshaphat, Amaziah, Hezekiah, Josiah, and Zedekiah. We're going to try and talk about two or three of those. 
The southern kingdom began with Jeroboam, Omari, Ahab, and Jehu. We're going to talk about Ahab. Let's start with the northern kingdom, Ahab. In 1 Kings 16, 29 to 34, I've got a lot of mess passages because it's God's word and that's what it's about. It's not about John, but I want you to see the story. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel and he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 20 years. Omri had conquered and taken part of Samaria and he set up the capital there, Shechem. So the northern tribes of Israel, a separate country almost, no longer worshipped in Jerusalem. They had their own temple that they set up in Shechem, which is in Samaria. And thus we start to see the division of the Samaritans. We talk about the New Testament, about the Samaritans, how they were opposed, because it became an apostate religion. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. There were some bad kings before him, but Ahab was off the charts. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel. (laughs) Now there's a sweetheart. Don't ever name any of your children Jezebel or Ahab. Jezebel is the daughter of Baal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, and he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel before him. What a legacy. And this is only a few kings after Israel is divided. They have slid into the bottom of the pit. When they talk about worshiping Molech, they sacrifice their children to Molech. And the way they did it was atrocious. I won't even tell you. It was brutal. I'm going to do a little aside here now. We look at Israel and we say, how could they do this? What is going on? And I'm going to conclude with this, but how many children have we sacrificed to Moloch? How many children have we sacrificed to abortion? So lest we be too judgmental, it's not too far to slide away. The northern kingdom never really had any godly kings. Series of pagan worshipers, and it was conquered by Assyria 209 years after it came into existence. Less time than the United States has been in existence. But God was still faithful. During that period of time, he sent to them some of the most famous prophets ever. Elijah, Elisha, those great prophets. Remember Elijah? We could preach for a month on Elijah. But he's the one who took on the prophets of Canaan, the Canaanite prophets. Set their altar. They had their altar. They bounced. First, they wanted us supposed to bring down fire to start, and the altar wouldn't burn. They danced around. They marched around for a day. They cut themselves. They did everything. So Elijah sets his altar, pours water on it, douses it, calls down fire from God. That's the Elijah. Fascinating. But he was there because God never gave up on them. God sent one of his most important... Elijah is considered to be, by the Jewish people, the most important prophet, and by us too. And yet, they wouldn't turn. They wouldn't return to God. Elisha followed, another great prophet, but they wouldn't return. So they ended up, God 
disciplined them. Remember God said, as long as you obey me and keep my commandments, the land is yours. But if you disobey me, then I'm going to evict you. Now the land is God's and it's an eternal covenant to Israel, but it's kind of like if you don't pay the rent of obedience, you get evicted. And they did not obey. And so he disciplined them. The southern kingdom, not all great kings, but a lot of really good kings. One of the best was Asa, Asa. 1 Kings 5, 9 to 20, 15, 9 to 24. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem 41 years. His grandmother's name was Machat, daughter of Bishalom. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. Now, David now was not his direct father, but when they, in the Hebrew, a father may mean grandfather or in the line of David. He expelled the male shine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols his, father has, his fathers had made. He even deposed his grandmother Machah from her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive Ashtaroth pole. He really did a number on them. Asa cut the pole down and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. He brought into the temple of the Lord the silver and the gold and the articles that his father had dedicated. A return to God. His son, Jehoshaphat, in 1 Kings 22, 41-43. Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. We have an, a contrast here of Ahab ruling in the northern kingdoms, which is called Israel, by the way. Ten tribes stayed with Jeroboam. The northern tribes, the northern kingdom, called Israel. Two tribes in the south, primarily Judah, called Judah. Israel and Judah. Jehoshaphat, son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of the king of Asa of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. He walked... In all the way of Asa, his father, he did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. And then we come to Hezekiah, Hezekiah, 2 Kings 18, 2 through 8. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor those who were before him. From David on, there was none like a king like Hezekiah. That's his legacy. Compare that legacy to that of King Asa of the northern tribes. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. And then the last king we're going to look at in the southern kingdom is Josiah. Second Kings 22, starting in verse 2. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or the left. There's an interesting reference later on in Second Kings 22, 3, 21 to 23. He restored the Passover. One of the prophets under Josiah was Hilkiah. And they were refurbishing the temple and going and taking inventory. And Hilkiah finds a book. And he starts reading. He says, this is an interesting book. 
It's the covenant book. It's the Torah. It's the, the Hebrew Bible. He takes it to Josiah. Josiah reads it and goes, oh my goodness. Where have we been without this? He tears his clothes, goes into mourning, reads it. They haven't had been reading the Bible for hundreds of years. Even in the southern kingdom, which was godly. They had given up the word. And in 2 Kings 21 it says, He restored Passover. So no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or the kings of Judah. Passover to the Jews is like Christmas or Easter to us. That's how far they had drifted under ungodly kings. Now the end. The end of Israel was years before when the Assyrians captured the northern kingdoms. And now the end of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes down, destroys Jerusalem, the walls, the temple, burns it, takes him into exile. We know the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel, people like Daniel are taken to exile. They will come back, but only never as a nation. They'll come back and rebuild the wall under Jeremiah. But they'll never really be a nation again. They're always under the control of either Babylonians or the Greeks or the Romans. And then in 70 AD, their entire temple is burned down. They're dispersed. Millions are killed. And now, in 1948, we also see the prophecy that God promised. He said to them, your kingdom will be taken away from you. It will be divided. That came true. But he also prophesied through his other prophets that they would return. There would be a remnant that would be called out and they would return. We're one generation from falling away from God. It's Father's Day. Like father, like son. I want to compare two fathers with their sons. 1 Kings twenty-two forty-one. Remember Jehoshaphat, who walked in the ways of his father and did not depart from the word of the Lord? Compare that to 1 Kings twenty-two fifty-one to 53. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, wonderful father Ahab was, began his reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father who made Israel to sin. In my class, uh, K-group class, Tom Mooney built a soapbox for me. It says ivory soap on it. It stands in front of my podium. And now it's soapbox time. Israel and the United States. Israel is not the United States. The United States is not Israel. But I think we'd be blind if we didn't see a picture, a picture of something we can look to as we step back away from that butterfly wing and look at this picture, what do we see? We see our country sliding into moral decay. And I'm going to talk about something here. It's not a political problem. It's not Democrats versus Republicans versus Libertarians. It's not Congress's fault. It's not the Senate's fault. It's not the Supreme Court's fault that we've slid where we've slid. 
It's a heart problem. We're told that a major killer of human beings in this country is heart disease. Our country has heart disease. It affects the soul of this country. The U.S. is not a bad country, but we've got spiritual heart disease. Now, lest we become depressed, remember, we have God's Word, which includes, includes the prophets and Jesus and the writings of the disciples. We have the hope and the promise. And in a sense, we have the cure for heart disease. Now, we didn't invent it. We don't get pride for it. We don't get claim for it. We don't get any pats in the back. Jesus is the cure for heart disease. So consider yourselves as doctors and nurses admitting the world, the inoculation against sin. And that's Jesus Christ. That's our witness. One of the things I believe that hurt God so much about Israel was not just that they sinned and disobeyed him, but why did God form Israel? What was the purpose of Israel? It was to show the world what a nation can do that trusts God and obeys his commandments. They were to be a priestly nation and a light unto the Gentiles. We call that witnesses. They were to show the world what a godly nation can do, believing in the one true God, a God who leads them and guides them, and they follow him. And they didn't. And they betrayed that covenant they had with him. And they betrayed. It's like when a Christian is caught in a terrible sin or in the name of Christianity something evil is done. It's a blemish on our witness. For we are to be salt and light. Why are we such a great nation? Why was Israel such a great nation? Because God was there. Why are we considered to be one of the greatest nations ever? Is it because we're the smartest? We're one nation under God. We're a nation of immigrants. Except perhaps for the Native Americans, we are all immigrants. My grandfather immigrated from Norway when he was about 17, 18 years old. He had the equivalent of maybe a third grade education. He fought in World War I in the trenches of France. Came back, raised a family, was a carpenter in a little town in North Dakota, raised a family, hardworking. He wasn't the brightest and the smartest. I'm proud of my grandfather. There were immigrants that came over that were not the brightest. We didn't go out with the selection committee like some Harvard University and take the very the brightest and the best. The Statute of Liberty says... Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. So why did this nation become great? One nation under God. And the second reason I believe is that we have fulfilled the promise that God said to Abraham in Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. This country has anti-Semitism, but we have been a country of refuge for the Jewish people. We have blessed God's people. And we have continually blessed Israel. 
We don't have to agree with them politically, but those are God's people, and we're blessing them. So God is faithful to his promises. He has blessed us because we have blessed them, because we have made him our God. We have followed him. And when we stop following him, look what happens. I think about how God brought Israel out of Egypt. But it seems like Egypt couldn't get out of Israel. They carried with them Israel for centuries. Another thing, I look at the Philistines and all the tribes that they were supposed to totally annihilate because when they went into the land, God did not want that influence to come upon Israel. They didn't do it. And there were Philistines that were there forever, that warred with them. Solomon was influenced by the Midianites, the Philistines, the Amorites, so on and so forth. Because we didn't kill them. Now I'm going to ask you, what's the Egypt you're going back to? What is it? Remember, Egypt represents slavery and to us, slavery to sin. Jesus Christ redeemed us. And that's a slave term. That means to buy you out of slavery. He redeemed us as his own. But we keep slipping back to Egypt, to our old life. Are there Philistines in your life that you haven't killed? Are they still in your life? Saul was a, Solomon was affected by outside influences. How much is the church, how much are we individually being influenced by what's politically correct? Well, there's nothing we can do about it. The influence and work, are we the same? Do we go back to Egypt when we go to work and then come back to uh, the promised land on Sunday mornings? We're all cleaned up. That's what we've got to understand. God gave us a picture of Israel to show us that he'll always be there. But if we disobey, he will discipline us. And we're going to pray that that doesn't happen. That if he does discipline us, and if, if he is, that we will repent and turn to him. On a high note, it's Father's Day, and some people have said it better than I have. Fathers, we have a responsibility. The fathers influence the sons, positively or negatively. And we as fathers have made mistakes, but our job is to be the spiritual leaders. We can't do it without the support of wives and neighbors and friends, but we are the spiritual leaders. It's a responsibility that's given to us. It's commanded to us. Like father, like son. Proverbs in 31 says, A godly woman is more precious than gold. And with a partner... With my partner, Susie, I'm strengthened. But it's my responsibility to be fathers. To be a father like David. To be a father that Asa to Jehoshaphat. To be a father that is godly. Represents God humbly. The buck stops with us, guys. There is a significant majority of young black children that have never had a father. And the results are very difficult. It's a tragedy. That's not just true with a race. That's true with the entire country. 
displaced fathers, uncommitted fathers. We can change that. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.